Hello, and welcome to a new edition of Forward Vision, the podcast that continues the conversations of Bridges to the Future, but adds in something extra, focusing, as do our sponsors, the Splendid Forward Institute, on the implications of new ideas and challenges for leaders. Now, there's a growing and increasingly pessimistic debate about capitalism and democracy. The point just 30 years ago when the triumph of what could be described as a liberal social market seems now a world away. The rise of political populism, the financialization and continued globalization of capital, the rise of non-democratic forms of capitalism have all led more and more people to ask whether democracy and capitalism are any longer compatible. Now, this crisis has led to a variety of responses, but today we'll discuss a very different, very worrying response. This is those capitalists and their ideological bedfellows whose response to the challenges besetting democracy is simply to try to escape it entirely. You're listening to Forward Vision with Matthew Taylor, the podcast to help you think differently, feel differently and lead differently. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome Professor of History and writer Quinn Slobodian, author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Hi, Quinn. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Now, there's a, a lot of range and subtlety in the book. It's absolutely fascinating. But if you don't mind, can we just start with me asking you to kind of lay out the core hypothesis? Sure. I mean, I think the spur to write the book for me was a kind of a dissatisfaction with the way that politics was being discussed over the last few years, as it seemed to me either in the setup as a kind of a binary that either we had smooth globalization or we had a kind of a nationalist backlash and that these were the two relevant scales at which we could understand politics and capitalism and how it works. The book proposes instead that we need to look at forms of economic geography that go below the nation. And so it introduces through a variety of national contexts and historical moments, this idea of the zone being a space that is inside of nations that is governed by a different set of laws that in some cases is self-consciously, deliberately designed to act as a workaround for all the problems of representative democracy and produce a more smooth space for capital investment and for the actions of manufacturers, savers, service providers of all sorts. So in the historical narrative, it begins in the 1970s with the kind of discovery of Hong Kong as this colonial anachronism, which is somehow still operating at a very high level of success capitalistically, the time when many other countries are struggling. And one way of looking at the book from then is an attempt to kind of multiply and replicate the model of Hong Kong, a kind of a small ring fence space governed more like a corporation than a country across the globe and in a variety of different contexts. So let's talk a bit more about Hong Kong, because as you say, that's where the book starts in the sense that historical accident of Hong Kong inspires a whole variety of people 
Milton Friedman is one of those people who kind of go there and excited by it and excited by the possibilities that it seems to suggest of capitalism being free from the problems of democracy. And by the way, in that part, I was reminded of something that I hadn't thought about for many years, which was studying the new right, which I did many years ago, that the new right actually spent much less time extolling the benefits of markets and capitalism and much more time systematically critiquing democracy and politics. That was actually its kind of intellectual strength. So it had this argument that said, it basically argued for free markets less because of the wonder of free markets and more because of a set of theories, public choice theories and similar, which suggested there was inherent problems of democracy, that it would inherently lead to the growth of the state, the restriction of freedom. That was a kind of taken from Hayek. And so you have this kind of intellectual heritage. You have this kind of sense of amongst free market advocates that the real issue is the problem with democracy. But there's not much they can do about that because attacking democracy as democracy is not generally legitimate. And then they stumble upon Hong Kong. And here they've got this kind of ready-made system in which democracy is incredibly muted and capitalism seems to be thriving. That's right. It becomes a kind of a way that one can have a non-democratic version of politics that doesn't simply look like authoritarianism in a blunt form. I mean, I think the setup with Hong Kong for me in the book comes a lot from my own practice as my kind of day job as a history professor and thinking about the ways that we tell stories about the 20th century to students and then by extension to readers. And there, you know, one of the big stories we tell about the 20th century is the movement from a world of empires, the beginning of the 1900s to a world of self-determining nations with the processes of decolonization at the end of overseas saltwater European empires. And that's usually something that we all can kind of agree on. You know, historians disagree about a lot, but if you say, well, what's one of the storylines of the 20th century, we move from a world of empires to a world of nations. The fascinating thing about the discovery of Hong Kong by a group of kind of libertarian intellectuals and luminaries of the new right, as you say, in the 1970s, is Hong Kong was very much out of step with this transition, right? I mean, the 1960s were really the big era of decolonization. Some last stragglers from the Portuguese empire and so on in the 1970s. But by the end of the 1970s, we really were looking at a world in which the principle of national self-determination seemed to have triumphed. And yet, it seemed like these sort of oddities, like Hong Kong, Singapore is another one I talk about in the book, were surviving even though they didn't fit the mold of what was seen as kind of a normative state. So Hong Kong was a crown colony in the late 1970s, sort of beginning the negotiations of how they might be handed back over to the People's Republic of China as sort of this leftover bit of the 19th century wars of conquest really that Britain had waged in the Far East. And nonetheless, they offered a kind of exotic, easily envisioned, right? One can just imagine the skyline. You could imagine, as I describe in the book, a kind of a portable Hong Kong that could be almost sort of lifted up and plucked out of the space of the South China Sea and set down anywhere else throughout the world. And that ended up being a very compelling idea for many people from Friedman to Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Romer, as they talk about later in the book. So part of my task in the book was to sort of try to distill down this vision to say, what is it precisely that they love about this place? I mean, it's not the lack of democracy for its own sake. What do they think that 
having no democracy makes possible, that democracy impedes. And there I focus on a couple of things that become the kind of defining features of this portable Hong Kong. The first one is this idea of constitutionalizing a very low flat tax, which they end up doing in the 1990s in Hong Kong. That becomes something that libertarian entrepreneurs then pluck out and propagate in post-socialist Eastern Europe in particular. Another thing is this idea of just the smallness, the size, that one can take a very small territory inside of a large territory and do something experimental and interesting with it. And that gets picked up and plopped down very directly into the deindustrialized Docklands in London as a quite explicit attempt to create a sort of a mini Hong Kong on the Thames, of course, more or less successfully, depending on how one defines it. We now have sort of second financial center of Canary Wharf. This happens also in the United States, the creation of these so-called urban enterprise zones, which in varying forms remains the model of urban renewal in the United States. You take the smallness, the charm of the small scale, and you sort of try to replicate that legally with a smaller jurisdiction instead of a bigger country. The third thing that they home in on as a kind of a central feature of the portable Hong Kong is an idea of economic freedom as being more important than political freedom. And this is really essential, I think, to understand the proactive, positive, or productive side of the sort of neoliberal or libertarian ideology. And the idea that someone like Milton Friedman or Hayek would say is that on a day-to-day basis, we interact with people all day long, and we do it almost always through monetized and commodified relationships, right? That all day long, we're making choices about where we allocate our money, who we exchange with, what kind of contracts we enter into, and so on. And in fact, we interact with democracy as a sort of a broad concept, much less frequently. You know, a couple of years, you go to the ballot box. If perhaps you're the member of a political party, you're probably not. So in the period of the 1980s and 90s, and I talk about this in the book, they said about trying to create a way to center economic freedom and by doing so to sort of demote the importance of political freedom. And the most direct way they did that was by creating a kind of a global ranking kind of a league tables of economic freedom called the index of economic freedom that placed Hong Kong number one, Singapore number two, and much larger, technically wealthier, certainly more equal countries were much further down the list. So the question that they were trying to pose was, why do people think a place like Sweden is free when we, doing the numbers, know that it's economically unfree? Therefore, how do we kind of place places like Hong Kong, however small they might be, on a pedestal and produce them as normative ideals for the future? And so I think in doing so, they really scrambled a lot of our assumptions about modernization, about the passage from empires to nations, about the natural self-evident quality of democracy and capitalism as sort of conjoint twins or mutually reinforcing concepts. Maybe I think you slightly underplayed the degree to which the new right had developed, as I say, through things like public choice theory, quite a sophisticated critique of democracy. And that in a sense, the belief that democracy led to, in the end, as Hayek put it, the road to serfdom, that democracy was a dangerous thing in the end, was quite strongly there. And I I mean, I get all the points that you're making, but I think it's just interesting when I excavate the new right, that that anti-democratic strand 
was there as a kind of academic critique of democracy, but it wasn't operation. How could you operationalize it? Because you couldn't go out in the kind of politics of the time and say, look, actually, we need to kind of pull back democracy because democracy was considered to be a very positive idea. But now Britain appears in this story in three different ways. And one is Hong Kong and its governorship of Hong Kong at a period when your story starts in a sense. Then there's also, and we won't talk about this, but there's, of course, Britain's role in tax havens, which are a different kind of zone, and the role that the city has played in relation to capital and the use of those kinds of zones, which are basically ways in which people can hide any kind of scrutiny and taxation. But the third way, which is one you just mentioned, is this concept of the enterprise zone, which was created by Thatcher and has rumbled on ever since. And indeed, now this government has got its own investment zones. Now, these are at the kind of most mainstream end of your spectrum. I think people generally don't associate these ideas of enterprise zones or investment zones with a kind of dark attempt to hollow out democracy. But you want us to understand that they are on that continuum. Yeah. I mean, the sequence of kind of reasoning that leads to the desire to create an enterprise zone that is sort of separated out of the oversight of a local government is very much the same one that would eventually lead someone to desire to skip over a couple of steps and just create a new polity altogether. So the idea is, how do you create extraterritorial spaces inside of or beyond existing legacy polities that are overlaid with these sort of long-standing interest groups, rivalries, difficult coalitions, redistributional sort of demands that over time, and this is the argument that you're alluding to from public choice and social choice theory, someone like Mansur Olson would reinforce the idea that Milton Friedman was saying, which is that democracy is a good thing, but over time, democracy has a tendency to erode free market societies. This was the argument that many of them would have agreed with. And they were indeed in kind of a bind. It's like, what do you do with that insight? In my last book, I wrote about the Austrian and German side of the story. And they had kind of two conclusions. One is you either kind of legalize the problem away or constitutionalize it. So the German fixation on debt break or a balanced budget amendment is a good example of writing laws into something like the European Monetary Union or the European Union, which just puts everyday decisions out of reach of majority elected governments. The other thing is you use sort of supranational institutions like the World Trade Organization to kind of take out of the hands of governments, often willingly, governments willingly cede part of their sovereignty because now they can say, hey, we have no choice. We're locked into these free trade agreements. So insofar as my last book was kind of about how you use scale in the vertical direction, sort of scaling up as a solution to this quandary you're describing, which is sort of how do you operationalize a critique of democracy? The other one is to go scale down through these enterprise zones or free ports. And reading the kind of debates and discussions in the early 1980s, when a series of enterprise zones and free ports were part of the first Thatcher budget, which in practice are almost identical to the very ones that Johnson rolled out and then Truss and Quartang briefly discussed. And Sunak now has made a core part of his vision of leveling up. The idea is the same, which is that Local governments tend to be inefficient, too beholden to long-standing special interests. 
And so you actually need to create vacuums of governance, which will set different priorities that will make hospitability to incoming investors the number one priority that won't have too many bothersome labor regulations or tax demands. So it's, I think, a really important part of the story that when the Enterprise Zone in the Isle of Dogs was rolled out, it was accompanied by, a couple of years later, the elimination of the Greater London Council, right? As Thatcher cleared the way that was still being impeded by sort of troublesome, often left-leaning labor or even further lefts, more socialist-leaning local governments needed to be dispensed with to be able to free the runway path for developers, many of whom were coming from outside of Britain, to take advantage of the big tax holidays and, and handovers that they were being given. So the through line is remarkably clear. And some of the people who were advising Thatcher in the very first round, it's Almon Butler, for example, one of the co-founders of the Adam Smith Institute, was literally still sitting on the advisory council on free ports for Boris Johnson a couple of years ago. And his theme then was the same as it is now, which is that for these to work, whether they're free ports or zones for investment or enterprise, they need to be as extraterritorial as possible. And this to me is the core of what I'm trying to get across in the book is this normative demand for what I call perforation. So kind of creating these pinpricks or holes, states of exception inside of states within which experiments can be ruled out, which can then draw investment away from other places, potentially act as blackmail possibilities, which I think is what tax havens do, right? They sort of blackmail other countries into lowering corporate tax rates, into lowering levels of bank oversight and allowing for more bank privacy. So this kind of the globalization and the free movement of investment has allowed for the possibility of this kind of jurisdictional competition and arbitrage. And whether you're creating a zone inside your nation or you're taking advantage of a distant tax haven, you're still, I think, playing this game of finding the edge between zones, which I think is not part enough about our way of how we think about debates over capitalism, which often do rather get stuck in the space of arguments between nations and national leaders, rather than looking at exactly the sort of uneven geographies of winners and losers that gets produced inside of nations as a result of attempts to catch up or find an edge. Yeah, and there's a link here, I think, certainly in the UK to, or England, at least to changes in local government, because I think there are two complementary shifts that are also taking place in local government. One is local government is starved of resource and therefore put in a position of increasing desperation. So the story to local government is basically, you're going to have to raise revenue yourselves by any means that you can, because otherwise you won't be able to sustain core public services. And on the other hand, the emergence of the mayoral model. Now, I broadly support the mayoral model, but there's no question. And we see this in the current row over what's happened in Teesside. Of course, we can't comment on the rights and wrongs there. But what we do see there is the capacity of mayors to do deals in ways which probably wouldn't have happened. I mean, there's always been corruption in local government, of course, but there's a particular kind of entrepreneur mayor that has been encouraged that can do these kinds of big deals that are often a necessary part of this kind of zonal story. So there's something interesting about what's happened to local government. Now, can I just follow up on that really quickly? Because it was interesting when I was in London about a month and a half ago or 
two months ago to launch the book. There was one day that I spoke in the morning in Chatham House and in the afternoon at Goldsmiths College. So the very different audiences, one was kind of policy wonks and consultant types, and the other one was mostly kind of artists and lefty sociologists. And I had the same question in both sessions, both from someone who was from TSI, who said, listen, you know, I'm from a place that was given hope. There were big promises made in the 1980s the first time around with these sort of tax-free spaces, the free ports at the time, the enterprise zones. They're like, it didn't work. And then people got disenchanted. They turned against local governments to sort of spread some of the resentment that led to Brexit. Like, well, it's happening again now. What happens now when the conservatives, the pro-Brexit kind of wing of the conservative party fails? Where will they go then, right? The sense of the potential for backlash and radicalization that I think often accompanies this idea that the secret of capitalist progress is just like cut and pasting this particular gimmick, right? Like we can make you overnight into Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong. How? This one easy trick. Everyone's doing it. We're just going to do a zone and the people are going to come running. And anyone who's serious, even in that space, never falls for that rhetoric. I read the sort of parliamentary debates, the sort of internal consultations about the first round of rolling out these free ports from a few years ago. And the people who are actually in the industry are like, no, you can't do Jebel Ali free zone in Dubai. I mean, they have, you know, rock bottom wages, no labor protections, no environmental protections. <laughs> so it's such a low tax rate that there's no way you could kind of reproduce this infrastructure. So the fantasy and the kind of overpromising that I'm describing in the book is not just, I think, corrosive because it's so often based on false premises but also because of the kind of political responses that it can then produce when it so often fails repeatedly. So that takes me neatly to ask you to kind of disentangle two things which you brilliantly weave together in the book. And that is, in a sense, a simple materialistic argument about capitalist self-interest, which is, of course, you know, capital working in a competitive global marketplace, having to compete now increasingly, particularly with China, will want governments to minimize regulation and taxation. And so the zones can be seen as an entirely rational way in which capitalists seek to maximize profitability and competitive success. But then there's another story which you weave through this, which is a story of a kind of libertarian anarcho-idealism, a kind of visionary, one might say dystopian kind of view of a world maybe tech-enabled, free of the kind of deadening, constraining, freedom-sapping nature of democracy. Now, of course, I mean, this is a kind of classic kind of Marxian debate, isn't it? One we've seen happen again and again and again between people with a kind of Marxian perspective, which is, well, is this really fundamentally just about capitalist accumulation? You need to understand it in those terms. Or should we do we need to understand this at the level of ideas as well, I mean, you know, as I say, it's one of the things that makes the book fascinating, these two sides to it. But how how do you see the relationship between a merely a story of capitalist self-interest and this kind of greater ideological vision? I mean, the thing about capitalism is it's, as is famously described, characterized by combined and uneven development. So you have different kinds of capitalism happening at the same time in different places. And there are kind of different regimes of accumulation or kind of modes of accumulation that I think call forth different kinds of politics. 
So if you're doing industrial manufacturing, then your relationship to your working class will be different than if you're doing call center work or you're doing high-end research and development. The marriage of capitalism and democracy that seems so natural to us for so long was really, I think, partially the product of a era of capitalism in which heavy industry manufacturing, what was called Fordism, was kind of the natural register for political economy and for politics. So the kind of big post-Second World War boom in Western Europe and United States produced the sense that you have a lot of people who need to be kept alive at some level, therefore let's make a welfare state, who feel good about having their wages rise as profitability of corporations rise and give an exchange a relative level of labor peace, right? I mean, this is the era of like mass democratic politics that lasted from you know, the 1940s up into, well, close to the present in, in larger countries. That was the kind of settlement or the relationship that was developed between the people with the money and the people with their labor. The thing that I find interesting about the move to a more finance-driven economy in the last couple of decades in places like the United States or England, for sure, the idea that the only real sectors that are making money are people who do real estate, or financial services, or maybe some forms of tech and a little bit of higher ed, is your relationship to the masses kind of changes, right? If you're Apple, for example, and you design in California, but your goods are actually assembled in China, then you don't really need to think about securing the health and the kind of well-being and legitimacy of a large working class in California the way that you would if that iPhone was being created right there, right? So what that produces then, I think, is a curious sort of set of organic intellectuals who are not necessarily the most powerful people in, say, the tech sector or the financial sector, but people who can kind of channel as an avant-garde does the spirit of the moment and sort of extrapolate out from the world that is beginning to come into existence into a vision of what it might look like in the future. So the same way that you think about Fritz Long making the film Metropolis in the 1920s, right? Thinking about the city as this vast sort of organic machine with an underclass living in the catacombs going down to work and the wealthiest living up in the clouds. This idea of mass society as a machine, which animated so much kind of science fiction and let's say an earlier version of dystopian literature, has now been displaced by the kind of people I write about in the book who imagine not a kind of a dystopia of mass society, but a dystopia of endless fragmentation with a constant possibility of exit. So I think that Neil Stevenson's book, Snow Crash, which I return to in my book, which was published in 1992, is really kind of the best example of this. He imagines a world where the United States has been completely privatized and broken up into small gated community like statelets and sort of mini zones. And one is, you know, a paid client citizen of this or that zone. And the kind of rights you have and the sort of protections you have are completely tied to the service that you have paid for to be a client of this or that jurisdiction. And this is 
not an accurate description of America, nor is it likely to be an accurate description of America anytime in the next couple of decades. But it does channel very much, for one thing, a kind of online mentality. You know, we go online, we're not in a public space, we're in the equivalent of like a shopping mall. We operate under the terms and conditions and the agreements that we've accepted to use Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is. So those more wild anarcho-capitalist intellectuals that I describe in the book, I see them as kind of symptoms of a shift in one particular way of still accumulating capital, right? I mean, there are still coal mines, there are still oil rigs, and the relationship that those capitalists have to their workers is different than the relationship that Elon Musk has to his service base or his user base. So I think what the intention of my book was to do a bit of kind of dowsing and sort of poking around to say, like, who is it here that is channeling best what is now considered sort of the leading edge of capitalist accumulation? What I think is fascinating about having written it over the last few years and then having it come out now is that there are many ways that some of those assumptions that those tech barons and the sci-fi writers and anarcho-capitalists I write about, the things that they, I think, thought were going to be lasting for much longer are now being fundamentally questioned, right? I mean, the whole industrial policy turn in the United States under Joe Biden or in the EU even, this is haltingly in the UK, right? It seemed like it was more of a push under Johnson than it is now. But the idea of bringing supply chains home, bringing manufacturing back inside, seeing globalization as more of a threat rather than an advantage suggests a kind of a move away from this globe-trotting jurisdictional shopping that I describe in the book. So I'm actually enheartened by that. I think I see that as a good thing because I think when politicians feel like they need to be accountable to their own working class and not just being parasitical off of the exploitation of a distant one, then you can only hope for better outcomes. Yeah, no, that's fascinating, Quinn. And I, and I want to refer back to a conversation I had on this podcast just a short time ago with Lucy Porter, who'd written this book about activist leaders in capitalism. And so she was writing about corporations from JP Morgan to Maersk, the shipping company to Walmart, who, whatever one might want to say about their initiatives, had undertaken pretty substantial initiatives in areas like climate change or inequality or whatever. And so then it made me think, reading your book, well, how do I square this with capital that simply wants to kind of escape responsibility? And now, you've offered one account, which I'm sure is part of it, which is, well, what kind of capital is it? What kind of corporation is it? But I think there's something else going on here, which is that Capitalism and democracy is in a dance. And in that dance, it's trying to respond to the moves of the other party. But it, for capital, it's trying to hedge its bets, basically. So if you're looking at the rise of populism, you're looking at the apparent inability of democracy to solve problems, the decline of the kind of democratic legitimacy, the decline of deference towards politicians all of that stuff, you might want to bet on two things. One is you'd say, okay, well, one bet we'll take is to try and help government out. We will recognize that there is a kind of a legitimacy crisis in society, and we are going to try and do things that, that help government 
and make us look better as well and try in a way to repair this relationship, but on our own terms. And then there's another route, which is the route you described in the book, which is say, yeah, but if that doesn't work, we need an escape route. We need somewhere to go. And that both of these responses are different. And actually, of course, some corporations you can see pursuing both. You can see these corporations both with really rather impressive programs of social responsibility at the same time as pursuing policies which are around kind of trying to evade their tax responsibilities. Would you agree that that's how we have to understand this, that there's a a variety of ways in which capital is trying to deal with the frailties of democracy at the same time as often contributing to those frailties? Yeah, I mean, I think that it comes down to this recently propagated buzzword of de-risking, right? I mean, it seems to me that if you look at the history of, let's say, things like energy transitions, I've just read a fascinating book by uh, the historian Stephen Gross about the series of energy transitions that the Federal Republic of Germany went through since the Second World War, like leaving coal to oil, oil push into nuclear, push into solar and wind in the 1990s, and then push out of nuclear and even more into renewables recently. And what he points out, and I would generally agree, is capital does things when the state makes it profitable for them to do so. So if through investments and subsidies and transfers, the sort of entrepreneurial state conscripts capital into investing in this thing rather than that thing and changing the laws so that it doesn't become profitable anymore to do something like start new coal mines or drill new wells, but rather to scale up production of photovoltaic cells or turbines or whatever, then capital will be a kind of an ally or can be a necessary motor for social outcomes that are sort of collectively decided upon. When the state expects capital to act on its own in the interest of the whole, then this it just simply, I think, never works. I think this can produce a kind of brief translucent bubbles of rhetorical promising. I think that if you go to the World Economic Forum or places like that, you hear a lot of rhetoric from companies and supposedly thought leaders and so on. But very little of it actually translates into real change unless the state has changed the parameters such that it's more profitable for them to do this good thing rather than this bad thing. So I think that's my feeling is like it remains the case that the way that we kind of allocate scarce resources in the industrialized North still remains primarily in the hands of private actors, right? It's unlikely to be suddenly the case that government is the one that is mostly doing the spending. And given that reality then, I wouldn't see it as a dance, more as a kind of an attempt to put capital into a harness and chain it to the uh, cart of the rest of society and guide it and tell it to go the same way that the animal power was used to magnify the possibilities of the human body. I think that's the way it's better to think about it, because when given its own autonomy, it will make choices only good for itself. Well, Quinn, it's been fantastic talking to you. Your book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy is, I mean, it's intellectually really rich, but it's a great read as well. So thank you for writing it and thank you for joining me on Forward Vision. It was a pleasure. Quinn's book 
it seems to me, highlights the contradictions of both capitalism and democracy and how these contradictions create opportunities that can be exploited by various problematic actors. How will we start to put this back together and return to some new version of the post-war consensus seems, well, it seems an almost impossible task. But for me, at least, it has to start with reimagining and reinvigorating democracy itself. And that means, as we think about a general election sometime in the next 18 months, that we need to start asking politicians not just why they want to be in power, but how they intend to create and sustain a deeper and more progressive form of democratic legitimacy. Goodbye. And if you've enjoyed this edition of Forward Vision, please leave a rating or review in your podcast app. It really does make a difference. Thank you. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.